Do you remember the first time that you became aware of Midnight Oil? You know who they are. <laughs> Incredibly powerful music, a, a deep awareness of the fragility of how special life is here in Australia. And of course, the epic stage presence of the front man, Peter Garrett. All those things meant that Midnight Oil is easily one of the most important musical artists that our country has ever produced. A couple of weeks back at South by Southwest in Sydney, I had the immense pleasure of welcoming Peter Garrett as my guest for this show. He's got some new music out at the moment, so to get the chance to speak to him a second time on this podcast was a, a great honour. It was like eight years ago that he came on the first time. Peter Garrett is easily one of the greatest living Australians, not only through the immense cultural contribution of his music, but also through his unyielding activism and long political career, Peter's got an enormous influence in our country. And in front of a packed room at the ICC in Darling Harbour, a room that unfortunately was not big enough, we actually had to turn people away. <laughs> Sorry about that, but I'm glad you can hear it now. In front of that room, Peter held us in the palm of his hand for the best part of an hour. And he generously shared stories about his journey through music, through activism, which he took all the way into a career in politics, all while emphasizing the importance of connecting with people when it comes to making a difference. Peter and I discussed the fight for climate action and environmental protection, and we explored the need for mobilization and organization in order to create lasting change. There's a little new music out now. Uh, there's way more to come from a second solo album, so we do touch on staying creative, uh, as you go through life, indeed, as you get older, and also how music continues to be a powerful tool for activism. Peter Garrett is absolutely captivating to listen to. And when you hear the perspectives that he shares, it is pretty clear why Peter Garrett is such a huge figure in our cultural landscape. Before we get there, I have to play some ads. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Exxon's a classic. Even at that time when we were on the back of that flatbed in front of 50,000 New Yorkers, they already had reports from their own scientists saying, you know what, if we keep on doing what we're doing now, we're going to cause global warming. 
and they kept it quiet. It's criminal. It's utterly destructive of humanity. I mean, we're really talking about serious things here, and this is what they continue to do. So in our country, you've got a licence to operate. It's called a social licence, which partly comes from the regulations you operate under and partly comes from us all saying, you know what, we'll put up with a bit of pollution because we can drive a car. We're not going to put up with it any longer. That is musician, author and former politician Peter Garrett. This is Osher Ginsberg, Better Than Yesterday. We are at South by Southwest, which is at the International Cricket Club. <laughs> this is, uh, it's the ICC. We're on the shores of Darlin' Arbour, which you pronounce without an H. And um, this is South by Southwest Sydney. Uh, I'm Osha Gisberg. This is a podcast called Better Than Yesterday, which is simply trying to... It does what it's... I like things that do what they say on the box. I work on a show called The Masked Singer. It does that. All right. And uh, this show, all I try to do is have a conversation with someone who's been through it and try to hear what they have to say and learn from it. We've done over 500 interviews uh, and on Fridays it's just me and just kind of monologuing and we've done over 200 of them and it's so far doing pretty well. And um, I couldn't be more than happy to say, oh, my next guest is one of the greatest living Australians. I think you'd agree with that. Like this, there's few people who are alive that have, have, have had as much cultural impact as the work that this person has been a part of, uh, not only uh, through music, through activism, but then, you know, really where the rubber meets the road in the halls of power. He's just released his second solo album and I couldn't be more happy to say, ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome to South by Southwest, Peter Garrett! <laughs> Here, here we are. How are you, here sir? Here we are. I'm good. You, you mate. Hey. I'm so happy to see you. Oh, big raps. Thanks, Osh. Well, it's, come on. No, come I'm on. not making it up. <laughs> Stop being so humble. I listened uh, to you the whole way in. Like, I'm on the motorbike going, Come on, Jay! It was great. That's good. That's good. Yeah. It was, it was awesome. How, how does it feel to put new music out there? I mean, there's Amazing. not many musicians who have had the career you've had, who go, you know what? Yeah, another solo record. Yeah, here <laughs> no. I go. Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, the bottom line in all of this is that we're driven. You know, if there's songs and sounds around and you want to share them with people, then you'll have a crack at it. And you never know when it's going to stop or when it's going to start up again. For me, it's interesting because it sort of stopped and then started again. And when it started again, I thought, I need to respect this, I need to honour it, I need to really shepherd it around and try and make it as good as I can. So, yeah, another record. Connecting with people through music is something you've always done. What was it like to, you know, after you left politics, to get back and have that, that first gig again and see the look in people's eyes as you sang to them? You know when you're uh, getting your first apartment or a flat or you're getting a house or you're getting sorted and, and you need a new bed and you go to Sleep Maker or one of these places and you just you walk in and you go, wow, I'm just going to lie on every comfortable bed. I can afford it. Yeah. I'm going to get a good mattress. That's what it felt like. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's some young people in the room, but I've got some terrible news for you. 
as you get older, the very best part of your day is when you get horizontal. I can vouch for that. I've had three hip replacements. I'm not even lying. And you lie there and go, oh, fuck you. Oh, oh shit, I'm going to wee. But then you get to do it again. Which is good. So, yeah, it felt like coming home. Yeah, very much. And I think, you know, you've got to compartmentalise things when you're in public life. There's things that you do, and particularly in activism and politics, where you're not free-ranging. You're not working off intuition. You're working off the rational side of your brain. But music is different. It's very elemental. It's very primeval. It's very emotionally driven at times. And for me, the stage is the second home. So it felt like I was coming home again. And playing to people and singing to them and sort of bringing everything to each song and just, you know, spitting it out, that's, that is what I do. So it was great. There's a, a benefit of having had the career that you've had that it's not just the music that you make, it's who you are to people. You are one of us who is brave enough to stand up and speak or sing to power, depending on which, you know, role you are in. So to stand in a room with you and watch you perform is watching someone who was able to do something I couldn't do. And that's kind of really adds to the experience. Well, uh, no one would probably do it quite the way that I do, but I think everybody sort of can do it in different ways. I think that key to it for me has always been no filtering, no hesitation, no second guessing, um, not much anxiety about it, and believing that the moment that you're in, there's never going to be another moment like it. I mean, it, it's a little bit like a cliche, isn't it, Oshby, when you think about it, but it's actually true, you know. You've got to make each of those moments on stage count for yourself and then it'll count for other people. And I think that particularly in the oil's early stage. You know, we spent so much time in the pubs playing to people who didn't want to listen to us. And it sounds weird now, but it's true, you know, ducking the cans and the chairs and the fights breaking out and people saying, you know, go home and what do you know and so on. So you do develop a bit of a second skin. So you've got your second skin on, but you don't want that to be the what it's all about. And the other thing about it is that how lucky, how incredibly fortunate is someone like myself to be in a band like this with people that want to come and hear you play. I mean, it's so rare, it's so special. It's, it's a privilege in some ways. You've earned it, but it's still amazing. And so having done, you know, 14 years out of it, including 10 years in government nearly, coming back was like, oh, this is really... <laughs> I mean, I think I felt the special of us probably more than anybody else. When I say that you had the, the, the balls to do things that none of us could, you did some of those things with extraordinary commercial risk, all right? So there's a point where all of you in the band are all in. You have got mortgages by this stage, you're paying houses, there's kids, you're putting people through school, and then you go and stand on the back of a truck in front of Exxon headquarters. Was there people in your circle going, mate, you're gonna fuck this, don't do it? <laughs> They'd long gone. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think by that stage, this is, yeah, we'd always done that, yeah. actually. And we always figured that if we could stay alive, and we were lucky, you know, we, we had a, a bank manager that believed in us, actually. It sounds weird, I know. A bank but, manager? Yeah, no. Not a band manager? No, no. Well, we had a band manager as well who believed in it and still do, but uh, we had a bank manager who came along, you know, like very early on and thought, okay, I'll, I won't call in the overdraft. Essentially, that's what happened. I mean, we were still in debt seven years or eight years in. Wow. You know, but point being, it literally was never about the money and still isn't um, and it can't be. 
I mean, once it's about the money, then you've lost something. Of course, you've got to try and survive and you've got to pay people's wages and do things fairly, but it's actually the, the core part of it is we are going to go and play this show and we're going to try and pull something off in New York or in Canada or in Australia or Europe or Brazil or wherever. For us, this is more important than figuring out what the consequences might be. I mean, it could all turn to shite or you could have a glorious moment in the sun or something in between. <laughs> you don't know. But it's worth, it's worth trying. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. Yeah. When it comes to putting the new music out, I've only heard two songs so far. And the first song I heard was a song called The True North, which I was taken aback with how much, I mean, to quote the great man, I don't believe in an interventionist God. Okay, but uh, it sounded like my early indoctrination into one of those places, it sounded like a hymn. It sounded like a hymn to the extraordinary landscape and Mate, all I around ca- us. I cannot believe that you said that because the record won't be out until next year, but we've got a couple of songs that are going to be floating around this year and that's the first of them. And when I did this whole business, you know, with, with this idea of a record with the lyrics and a title, I thought I'm going to put something next to the title of the song which sums it up for me. So, like, for example, there's a song on this record called... What is it called? Uh, it'll come back to me in a second. Track four. Oh, yeah. Hey, Archetype. And the subtitle is Double Bay Car Park Collision, right? Because I nearly had a collision with a feral person in a car park who was in a massive brand new you know, SUV and was dripping with lots of money and they wanted their spot. And I was politely trying to say, look, if it's that important to you, you know, take it. But they weren't content with that. They were going to shunt me out of the Woolies car park, you know. The True North, I, I put him. Because <laughs> I've, I've only got a download file. I yeah, yeah, no, no. That. But you're right. It, it is. It, it is like a hymn. I mean, it wasn't necessarily intended to sound like that. But, uh, I mean, music's got a sacred component, so let it roll. You've been on the show before and... But I know when we, was it, though? Pardon? When was it? It was 2015. I couldn't, I couldn't remember. I it really. was before your first solo record. Oh, it was okay. right after you left politics. It yeah. was on the, the back end of you putting your book out. Yeah. I know we did speak about it. We touched on it. But listening to True North, it, The True North, it really did remind me of... Do you remember the first time that you felt that reverence in the Australian landscape? When it wasn't just, oh, this is bush and bindies and bugs, was... Oh, yeah, oh. I do. Yeah, I totally do. Yeah. Yeah. So I was probably eight or nine, maybe. And uh, like I grew up in West Pimble, north, northern suburbs of Sydney, but down on the west side. And so new housing area right next to the bush and right next to Lane Cove National Park and the river, Lane Cove River and the headwaters of the river. And it must have rained, you know, for like three or four days before me and a mate got there. And we sort of had our little bikes and we rocked down and then we started walking through the bush and we could hear noises and we could hear this, the sound of a stream, which in Australia is not that common because we're such a dry continent. And we sort of wrestled around the corner and there was the Lane Cove River starting to flow and surrounded, beautiful bush setting. And I just, I, like even telling you this story now, I can remember it clearly. And the smell. Everything, yeah, the whole thing. Becoming aware to every moment, kind of opening Frogs, up. Frogs, the birds going, hey, what are they, who are these two punks? What are they doing? And all of that. <laughs> Lovely. If you've never had that experience, I would encourage you just go and there's luckily in Sydney where we live. Oh, yeah. Uh, where I live, uh, there's plenty of that. 
uh, where I grew up in Brisbane, and uh, if any of you have watched the episode of Bluey called Creek, um, <laughs> which you have, that's a, a, a park called Bellbird Park, which is up near behind the Gap in Bernard Fanning Town. And one, nobody? One person, thank you. Uh, and also Mount Cuther, which is underneath. Uh, yeah. As little kids. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. As little about. kids, man, yeah. we would go to these places. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember exactly that, this, the sharp, acrid smells of the eucalypt in the sun, or if it had just wet, been rained, the, the smell of all the bits yeah. and pieces kind of growing. I, I really do think that, even though we live in a country where there's a lot of nature around us still, I really do think that if every kid could have that experience, yeah. we'd be a different country. How early in your life did protecting that become important to you? About a minute later. (laughs) (laughs) No, that really came about from, I did a lot of surfing as a kid. And at that stage, we were pouring untreated sewerage into the beaches off the coast of Sydney and other parts of Australia. And that seemed like a very dumb idea. And that's I sort of went, hang on a minute. Yeah, we need to change this if we can. And other people felt the same way and the way we went. And what did that look like? The sewerage or the action? (laughs) Uh, the, uh, yeah, yeah. the the Bondi cigar is the famous quote, but it wasn't just at Bondi that it happened. They literally no. put on, there was poo in the water, yeah. washing up on beaches, condoms, everything. Oh, it, was, it was really, it was totally disgusting. It was the best idea they had at the time. Yeah. It really was. It was. What are we going to do with this? Put it there. Yeah, classic out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what are we going to do about it generally, do you mean? Oh, no, what, 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 did what, the, did what did that look like when you're out there? What did doing something about it look like when you're a young man? Uh, well, figuring out whether there were other people who felt the same way and realising there were. Yeah. And then getting organised. You know, it's the secret of, of community action in whatever realm it is, is organisation. And then the secret of understanding that is to be organised, you know. So it's organised. It's like location, location, location in real estate. Yeah. It's organisation, organisation, organisation. Uh, so marches, lobbying, yeah. humbugging pollies, uh, a couple of big concerts. And just letting people know this was what was going on. And it didn't take long for people to say, that's not a good idea and we need to change it. Because we're all across our community, there's always issues about, look, it is a good idea. And yes, it's something we should do, but how do we get most Australians who are mostly decent people yeah. to see that? Yeah. And see that it's a, it's a decent idea. In fact, we'll be better off. Like yeah. the resistance to change, as we've recently seen, is yeah. colossal. What do you, where do you think that comes from? Uh, well, I think people have got busy lives. Um, we don't have a big tradition. Like, we're not like the French. We don't get out on the streets sort of every second day. And I think we can see that we're in a place that, by and large, particularly compared to other parts of the world, is pretty good. So we, some of us don't want to be seen to be whinging about things. And sometimes it's a case of, well, maybe it'll get fixed sooner or later and I'm prepared to put up with it for a while. So I don't think we're apathetic. I think we're just sometimes not as sharply focused on it as we can be. And the truth of it is that if the majority of Australians want something to happen, as is the case last weekend, uh, then it should happen. And, I mean, it should be argued out and you figure out the pros and cons, but there's no reason why, as an activist country, we can't shape our future as opposed to it being passively shaped for us by other greater forces. As I was riding the motorbike in today, <laughs> the song Forgotten Years came on as I was actually fanging past that Double Bay car park. And um, I, I, I wish that, 
I wish that we had had a chance to forget them because all the stuff that was in all of the, the, the yeah. songs of the peak of your career, uh, with the band that is, not to say the peak of your career is not yet to come, it could be, <laughs> are still really, really re- relevant. Yeah. The, the the mining companies. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah no. You know, the, I'll never forget. That was the first time I even heard the word when you were screaming it across the bridge of that song. Mining companies like, what the fuck is that about? Yeah. And I'm a kid and still yeah. this is a thing. And th- these are the people that are, you know, there's no one pulling levers. Sorry to pull. The UN, WHO, and the WF do not have a Slack channel where they get together and plot the overturn of the country. Like, I can't get my bash done, all right? There's no way that those three people are working together. Uh, but essentially these gigantic forces are moving unopposed because they weigh so much, so much force and power yeah. in our country. And still, yeah. is it, what, what can we even start to do about that? Well, I think people have started doing things about it. I think it's really about mobilising people and that's always the challenge with social movements and political action. And the mobilisation has to happen on a number of different fronts. And people can't get cynical about it. They can't leave it to others to do the hard work. We've all got to roll up our sleeves. I believe that really strongly. I mean, everyone has an opportunity in their own life to do good stuff. Let's just call it that for the moment. Uh, You need to be informed, understand why you're doing it. You need to find other people that you share those views with and then, then get on with it. I mean, look, to take a better example in a way than what I'm trying to say, I just think about all the volunteer sectors of the whole country, you know, like people who are volunteering to do whatever, whether it's going to old people's homes or down the kindy or the person at the front of the school, you know, stop-go signs and, and, and. Surf lifesavers, you know. Now, if we were to value that in the capitalist sort of frame, yeah. as you know, like we're in billions of dollars every Easy. year. Easy. Like the country cannot afford for people to do that but we can't afford not to have it done, we're doing it. Now, that's not to say that some of those jobs shouldn't be paid at some point, that we need to have equity and so on and so forth, but that's how it works, you know. It doesn't work within the realm of there simply being a material goal at the end. It's a much bigger goal than that. You do speak about the material goal and the other song, Innocence, which is the second song that I got sent. There's a, there's a fabulous kind of moment uh, in the track where we're almost flashed to the future and you're commentating on, I hope it's a long way away, but, it, you know, here we are at the, the court of climate criminals. Yeah. And, and just calling it out, here they come. The, the enabler, the acolytes, the, the journos from the cheer squad bringing up the rear. There's these whole systems who great, get great profit. Yeah. Aside from, you know, what's happening uh, with the profit coupled to the, the hydrocarbons, let's call them, being extracted from our country. Yeah. That seems overwhelming to even go anywhere near, though. How do we even go near that? Oh, I think we can, we've got to go near it. I mean, if we think that we can continue to burn coal and um, frack for gas and all those sorts of things for any longer, we're absolutely deluding ourselves. I mean, it's not even that the science is clear. Like, you know, stick your hand out the window, you know, do a weather check. There's a, uh, there's a cyclone forming in the uh, Coral Sea in October, yeah. just so you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, a really... It's never happened, ever. No, totally opposite. And, you know, luckily there are alternatives. You know, there's yeah. good technology alternatives. Yeah. Uh, it's not like we're short of sunlight in Australia. You know, <laughs> the wind does blow. And we've shown ourselves to be credible at actually embracing those new technologies, renewable energy, and not falling for what's basically a set of lies and propaganda from the fossil fuel industry, who not only are literally frying the planet alive now, but trying to make money on the way out the door. You know, that's the scandal of it. And I do believe, I mean, I'm trained as a lawyer, but I think 
back in the day, we saw the law as something, a relationship between people. And then we protected corporations to some extent. Uh, we tried to get some free rights for ourselves and develop democracies. But the idea of the law is that if someone knows they're doing something wrong, which is going to cause harm, then they should be held to account. Now, I'm happy to name them, the Shells and the Exxons and the BPs and, you know, the Origin Energies and Woodsides and all of these people are doing something wrong. And they know what the consequences are. Exxon's a classic. You asked me the question about us being in front of Exxon building. Even at that time when we were on the back of that flatbed in front of 50,000 New Yorkers, they already had reports from their own scientists saying, you know what, if we keep on doing what we're doing now, we're going to cause global warming. And they kept it quiet. These are the people we're dealing with. That's, that's reprehensible. Totally. Yeah, no, exactly. It is. It's, it's criminal. It's utterly destructive of humanity. I mean, we're really talking about serious things here, and this is what they continue to do. So in our country, you've got a licence to operate. It's called a social licence, which partly comes from the regulations you operate under and partly comes from us all saying, you know what, we'll put up with a bit of pollution because we can drive a car. We're not going to put up with it any longer. In that same song you talk about, never too late. Yeah. Because I'm sure there were points when you were working with the Australian conservation uh, movement that you were head in hands going, right now this is fucked. This is too much. We're, we're overwhelmed. Like, to go back and talk to that Peter Garrett and go, bro, like, trust me, <laughs> 2023. Yeah. What do you, like, never too late. It, it seems overwhelming. It seems like there's really so much to be done. It's almost, para we're almost paralysed by how much there is to be done. Yeah, but you know, there's a really interesting thing in social movements and, and history changes, and it pretty much goes like this. You've got, you're up against it in a really significant way, and you're not sure what your own role will be or whether you, you can find your way through or whether people can come up with a solution. And what happens is that people dig in, the numbers grow. It's still going on, it feels worse. The numbers grow. There's more awareness, it still seems, and then there's this flip moment. Berlin Wall coming down, classic example, you know, but there are others. So I feel like the dark before the dawn, to paraphrase a lyric, is in some ways the hardest part, but it's also the place with the greatest opportunity because you know something's going to break through. We just have to make sure that what's breaking through is the right thing to platform people for the next stage, essentially, of human evolution. You know, I mean, humans have got to grow up. That's where we're at. <laughs> I'm quite fascinated with the news because it has in my lifetime. I remember early on, uh, there used to be a thing for the young people in the room, there was a thing called records and <laughs> there was no internet. So if you liked a band and you couldn't afford a magazine but you could afford the record, you would just stare at the cover <laughs> and that's how you knew the artist. And on some of the artwork on the record cover, there was uh, like really highlighting of almost the Americanization of our primetime television schedules. There was, you know, talk about the American intervention in Australian foreign policy. And I'm on nine learning, and this is how I'm learning it. Yeah. You know, it was like CNN, but for, you know, a kid in, in Brisbane. And, and just having, seeing that the news being, you know, kind of complicit in some of these things. You mentioned we have a lot of sun. I think like two weeks ago, there was 15 minutes where Australia was powered 75% renewables. Yeah. All right. Like, why well, is that there. not fucking front page Yeah, news, no, totally. Man. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, exactly. It's a great success story. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. It's just, look, this part of the discussion is really interesting because you're absolutely right. And, you know, we can blame the media for not covering the good sides of what's going on, but we really need to hold governments and, 
of both persuasions, political persuasions, including the one that I was a part of, we need to hold their feet to the fire, you know, because it's pretty clear that this whole temperature increase to around 1.5 is a big challenge. Probably not going to get there at the moment, but the only way you will get there and stabilise, we just talk about stabilising, is by stopping yep. producing fossil fuel and, and not granting exploration licences and approving any more. That has to stop now. Can you, I mean, having been in those halls, yeah. having been in Pacambra, yes. how does the life, I have no idea, like in my brain, like some gigantic mining lobbyist comes in and goes, hey, we're going to go out to dinner and the bill's going to come to $9,990 so it gets underneath the 10 grand limit and we're going to have a long chat and I'm going to talk to you about how many jobs are going to go somewhere, somewhere, somewhere and this and this and this contractor and then someone says, you butte and then Bob's you. And like that's how my, it's not a conspiracy, it's my cynical way of looking yeah. at things happens. Is that far from what happens? How does it work? Uh, yeah, it's a little far, but, but also mm -hmm. it, there are lobbyists in the parliament. There's no question about it. I mean, everyone's in there lobbying and they're trying to see ministers yeah. and they're pushing their point of view. The key point, though, is why do we permit the continued exploitation of fossil fuel resources, which are endangering our lives as we know it? And the short answer is because we haven't accelerated the change to renewables and treasurers are reliant on the income stream from selling this stuff. And we need to be gutsy about just crossing the bridge. We need to say, you know what, we're going to cross the bridge. And actually, guess what? When we cross that bridge, say, for example, along with European countries, we're going to be able to build those new industries, those new technologies that employ people, that give our kids a future, instead of allowing these old industries these old technologies which are imperiling our kids' future to occupy. So, yeah, look, there's legislation, there are laws, they're not breaking the law at the moment, and they're producing a lot of money for uh, the Treasury, so that's why it's permitted to happen. But it can't go on. It just can't. It's a madness. Did you know that the four, I think there's the four biggest infrastructure projects in the world are all in Australia? Yeah, one person's on it. Well, you're a South by Southwest. They, uh, they're all in the Northwest. They're um, massive gas ports. They're fucking gigantic. Yeah, incredible. There's one person in a room of 120 people nods their head. We had no idea. Yeah. We have no idea. This stuff's kept so freaking quiet. Yeah. Because we know it's it's not okay. No, it's definitely not okay. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no question. I mean, we did the Aussie show in Perth on that final run, and we got up and called Woodside on it. And it was interesting because it's the first time that the debate in WA, which is a very mining-focused state, like super... super Mate, it's... It, oh. Yeah, well... <laughs> yeah, I yeah. was just there yeah, right you, around the voice referendum, you know, lead-up, and I was doing a lot of interviews and I was in all these kind of journalism places and I was like, oh, this is a different place. It is, it is. There's it only, is. A, like, literally, like, a handful of dudes that say what happens here. Yeah. Well, look, it is like that, but at the same time, you've got to say it, and we did, and others are as well, and we saw a breakout so that that stuff is now... I mean, another classic example, you know, Frio Dockers, you know, sponsored by Woodside. But the Frio Dockers Supporters Association and some of the players, if they could say it, like, hang on a minute, this is not cool, you know, it's not the right thing for us to be doing. So lots of different ways you can come at it, but as citizens, given that we're still in a relatively open democracy, there's no excuse that we don't. It is interesting you mentioned sport and mining because it wasn't just Frio Dockers, it was also the uh, Netball Australia and uh, the um, Gina Reinhart 
involvement with sponsorship. Totally. Uh, Hancock Prospecting. But also with sport, there was a, you know, the Australian National Rugby League team. There was a couple of players who days after the country voted no went, you know what, I'm not going to sing the national anthem. And the reaction to that in the press is generally uh, somewhere in the bracket widely, you know, kind of given by the bumper sticker, love it or leave. But I would put it that all those things happen because they do love it. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I agree with you. Can we talk a bit about that? But like, you know, I'm not protesting or I'm not making a fuss because I don't like my country. Yeah. I'm doing it because I fucking love it with all my heart. Totally. I've always said that I think that environment NGOs are the original patriots, you know, because they've done the hard work. They've produced the action that said, no, don't mind the Great Barrier Reef. Don't chop down, you know, sort of half of the Daintree rainforest, you know. And it's incredible for me. I mean, I've just, I've been spending a bit of time in Queensland, partly because of the True North thing, which I'm quite focused on. And every single bit of literature that's produced by the Queensland Government, the Tourism Bureau, all talks about these areas, how beautiful they are, that were saved by these very people <laughs> who 15 or 20 years ago were being told to leave. Yeah. <laughs> and how dare they get up and say, no, we can't have a, you know, yeah. Clive Palmer can't have 50,000, you know, coal trucks going through this particular bit of rainforest. It's, it's, it, our pub, the public discourse around it is something where you've just got to be a critical consumer of, of what's said. You have to interrogate uh, you have to realise that some parts of the news media that we have now are particularly prone to running these lines and they're sort of playing a little bit of, you know, can I get, you know, sort of the nasty little, you know, monkey that's on your shoulder to sort of actually bite at this or will the better angels of my nature say, hang on a minute, that's not right. These people are actually doing something for the country, not against it. It is difficult, though, to have been, certainly in the last 10 years, the polarisation of the information we get about the world is so, so intense. And uh, certainly in the last couple of weeks in our planet, we're recording this at the end of October in 2023, because, like I said, the show's been going for 10 years. You might be listening to this in 10 years from now. The information we get is almost expecting that you can only hold one idea at a time. Yeah. But that's not how humans work, is no, it? No, totally not. Can we talk, talk to me about like how it is to not like an aspect of something, but also at the same time appreciate why that is happening and talk about how, how people might be able to, I guess, reclaim how to do that. Wow, that's such a good question. I'm personally, really speaking from personal experience, Osh, because everybody's situations are different. But I do believe after all of this time that developing a platform of thought is a function of a bunch of different things happening. We all, we all essentially wear the imprint of the very millions of impacts that have come upon us over the years from when we first popped out of the womb. And we've also brought genetically with us a bunch of stuff as well. And after that, we also start to absorb what our culture is throwing at us. Our basic platform value, we need to work that thing out, what it is for us that, that makes the difference and how do we nourish that? In my case, I know what I stand for, I know what I believe in. I check whether I've got it right or wrong, and maybe I've, you know, if facts change, I will change my mind. But I love to provide and understand where that platform was. It was at the headwaters of the Lane Cove River. It's when someone was kind, when your mum and dad or someone was kind to you when you were being cared for. It was when you discovered there's something that you could do which you felt good about. It was having that quiet moment where you just looked around you and thought, wow, I'm actually alive on this incredible planet which is, you know, spiralling through space. It's all those moments. 
I'm going to defend, advance, interact with that where I can. And I don't for one second, and I'm going to be critical, I'm going to use my intellectual facilities, as it were, and be critical about what people are throwing at me. Are they trying to sell me something? Are they trying to persuade me of their virtue? Are they just talking about themselves all the time, which we get a lot in the modern world where everybody sees their world as something where I have to validate myself. You know what, to be blunt, I love chatting with you, but I don't, I don't have to validate myself here. I'd love people to listen to the music that's being made, think about the issues that I care about, but, you know, it could be someone else sitting up here. It doesn't, you know what I mean? It doesn't, some, maybe not someone sitting there, but certainly someone sitting, well, you will have someone sitting here later on and that's fine. So I think that's part of it. And trusting your instincts, you know, where you know that something isn't quite measuring up, but everyone around you going, nah, 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 and you're going, oh, well, is it no, 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 or is it, you know, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Let's think about that. Let's go Johnny Cash, you know. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're all walking the line. <laughs> <laughs> but just not, you know, with fidelity as that song was. It, it's like the line of 1.5 degrees Celsius, yeah, <laughs> essentially. No, uh, but I've noticed it in the... In the I, at the same time, can, and I'll, you know, I'm happy to say this, because considering my, you know, my experience in my life, I am at the same time understanding of, you know, both sides of the equation in the Middle East with all of my heart, right? You know, both of those things are as fucking horrible as each other. I don't think it's okay to be forced or expected to only choose one because the center is humanity. Yeah, I, I so strongly agree with this, you know. And I mean, you know, I was lucky. I had a mum who was a very thoughtful person, quite compassionate, quite political. But quite often she used to boil the issues down very basically, you know. Hurting people is not good. It doesn't matter who's doing it. Is it, Peter, at nine, me? <laughs> no, makes sense. <laughs> I can go with that. Thanks, Mrs Garrett. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Worked out well for your son's lyrical inspiration. <laughs> pretty good. Uh, you paraphrased lyrics before and, and one of the great lyrics that, that you gave us as a country to think about things that were different. Um, the time has come to say fair's fair. Uh, about five days ago the time came. Yeah, I don't think we said fair's fair. No, we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that moment, I'd love to get your kind of thoughts on, well, essentially your perspective from knowing what you know about Canberra. Yeah. The lead up to that they were told, don't do it unless there's bipartisan support. Yeah. Like, what on earth happened? It, it seems like it's a no freaking brainer. But yeah, that's because I'm me and I grew up how I grew up in a safe, you know, suburb in Brisbane and have had the experiences out. The, remember that time we were in uh, Darwin, uh, uh, Alice Springs at the Todd River? Yeah, so I've had like some wild experiences and, I, and had my Lane Cove River moment yeah. with our Indigenous culture and gone, oh, okay, this is yeah. like that easy. That's right. But that's, I got lucky. Yeah. Well, I feel the same way. Yeah. I, I feel that particularly when the oars went into the Western Desert in the 80s, we got lucky. I mean, where I grew up, there were no Aboriginal people and I didn't know any. Now I count them amongst my friends. Uh, but that's been like a 40-year journey, inverted commas. So what went wrong? Okay, so I think two things basically, uh, but just by way of, of really speedy response. Uh, one is that the campaign for yes wasn't well articulated and didn't have sufficient lead up and information for people to really know what was being put to them. I mean, I have read the constitution, but I reckon I'm probably one of a few in this room that has. And yeah, 
But I was at law school and we had to read the constitution. You know? Right. So the only other person who wasn't at law school <laughs> put that. So one person again. No, one person two, in a room of 120. No, yeah. we got a few. Yeah. And you may have read it on the run, run up to the boys. But in any event, uh, the S case wasn't able to, to make a clear case, didn't have enough lead time. And tactically, politically, once the Prime Minister at the first Gama Festival got up and said, this is what we want to do, and then at the second Gama Festival extended the olive branch to Mr Dutton, and Mr Dutton said no, there should have been a pause moment, and perhaps there was, but they decided to go ahead. That made it very difficult. On the no side, we had probably the most disgusting bunch of lies and sort of content across social media and across their campaign that I've experienced in my time here in politics. Uh, really deplorable, and we'll probably see more of it in the election, which I think we need to be really mindful of, whatever our political, political views are. So, you know, you had both things that needed to go one way or the other, both went the wrong way. You know, the other side of it is that, uh, and I'm speaking now as a former federal education minister, and who introduced the national curriculum, and part of the national curriculum was to have a strain called Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, which either would be taught as a separate subject or would be woven in to history or civics or geography or even art, whatever it might be. Some schools have done that better than others. My strong view is that every school, starting at primary, needs to do it. Properly accredited history, not one side or the other, but what we accept are the facts with a context to lead young Australians into this understanding of, hey, the first Australians were here, this is what happened, the country was taken from them, they did have their kids stolen from homes. We're not pretending this happened. This happened. They aren't as healthy, as well off, or as able to finish school as the rest of us, and we need to get onto that. That not being the discussion and the argument that you have with, a, with an eight or nine-year-old, you're just laying the history out and developing that sense of this culture is a very, very big part of who we are as Australians. And I think if we had that, then a lot of people that didn't have much understanding or knowledge or maybe hadn't met Aboriginal people or spent time with them would be better placed to decide whether we would have voted yes or no for something. There's always a difficult moment when entitlement rises above empathy. That's really kind of it, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, I, I think that's put really beautifully. And one of the things on the record that I've really wanted to do is sort of dig into my own heart, if you like, and try and express in other ways what we've been saying. I've been saying it different ways for many years, but just finding more human ways, perhaps, or more emotional ways of saying it. And I think that, you know, it, it, it can sound a bit cheesy, but boil it down, you know. Uh, are you empathetic or are you envious? Because depending on where you fall on that line, you're gonna behave very differently. Where do you think we can possibly go from here? On this issue, generally, do you mean? Or, yes, on, yeah. on, on the issue of, Greater Australia's relationship to uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait yeah. Islander people and the vast disparity between the outcomes that I expect for yeah. me, for my children. Absolutely. And any person who is associated with that in their, in their background. Okay. So I'll answer that quickly by coming back to a really other good earlier question you made about how did I feel as ACF president when we were fighting for certain things to find that you're still fighting about them? Well, actually, we won some of those fights. I mean, there's a whole bunch of Australia that's protected because of the work that ACF and others did over time. Now, you didn't win every fight or every battle, but we won some. And I feel the same way. I feel that, well, firstly, this bruising referendum 
has focused people's minds on this issue to some extent. The discussions that we've had at home, the dinner party, the family discussions, sometimes the arguments, the idea that, hang on a minute, you really think that, you know, or whatever it might be. That's happened and that's, even though we've had a negative result, that's a positive process. But that was already happening with welcome to countries, with our focus on the fact that this culture is materialising in entertainment, in music, in song, in politics, in business, in sport, in the way in which we present ourselves to the rest of the world. I mean, who did the dance at the Sydney Olympics to summarise what Australia was as a country? Senior Aboriginal women from the Central Desert. That's how we define ourselves, Aboriginal people, you know. So I think that's happening. Onto the practical side of it very quickly, we need to listen to the leadership, need to have a strong commitment, which has to be bipartisan. It, it, it can't just be one side saying one thing, one side saying the other. So I think moderate liberals, reasonable liberals, people that care about that issue, who, who are on that side of politics, need to be a part of that discussion. And we can't walk away from the disadvantage. It has to be done better. And that means listening to people on the ground. I mean, lots of stuff happening out there is good, like Indigenous rangers, the health centres, you know. Some maternal health indices are better, but there's a lot of stuff that needs work. The idea that, you know, the, the education could come into it in a different way. Because I mean, I grew up in, I'm old, all right? I'm, no, I'm, mate. <laughs> mate, no, no, no. When we sit here, you don't make, get to make that call. One of, us, <laughs> one of us has his third artificial hip and two hearing aids and is looking at you all with contact lenses. The other one's Peter Garrett. So, <laughs> I'm old. Who's not going to recite his medical history. <laughs> no. But, but I, I grew up in, I grew up in Bjolke Peterson, Queensland. Yeah, all totally. Right? What I learned at school was not no. at all that. Exactly. And my entire view of Aboriginality or Indigenous Australians' place in the world yeah. was shaped like that until I was about 19 years old when I met the first person in my life that was not a, a, a white Australian or yeah. Asian uh, Chinese-born Australian. Yeah. But there's people who are my age yeah. who through really, it's not because they're dicks. No, no, no. Yes, many racist people did vote no. All right, but a lot of people who did vote no don't not necessarily bigots. No, not uh, necessarily. They just didn't know, yeah, and it's not that's right. their fault. Yeah, no, no. Look, it's the same. It's there's another issue here as well. We're really going to see if you look at the states. I mean, we came back from our massive run in the states, and I've always been a supporter. I've hated the militarism, but you know, there's a lot, a lot of things about the culture and the politics of the place. It's energy, yeah. and it's positivism that you know I really, really can relate to. And the country's pretty broken and the politics is broken. And we could have broken politics here as well by the same forces at play unless we actually take an active interest in our own governance, in our own polity, in our own politics. And, um, you know, we have to do it in the room best we can, but we also need to make sure that people are growing up with it, understanding how rich the gift is. I mean, listen... You can go to any consulate, Australian consulate, anywhere in the world, and there's a queue of people outside that door, eight o'clock every Monday morning. I want to go there. I want to go there because I can see from here what an incredible place it is. A place of freedom, of fairness, of opportunity. Oh, mate, I lived in America for 10 years. My brother and his husband still live there. And um, I watched it fracture and get scarier and scarier. And um, when I got back, I... I kissed the time. Oh, man, like, oh, man, I've done that. No guns on the street and free healthcare. I will take this. Any day. And as much as, I, and I've said this before, like as much as I find reprehensible what the Howard government did, getting guns off the street in oh, it was his country un, was It's his only moment. Uh, 
He may. But, but, he, but he did it. You only need one. No, no, totally. <laughs> you only, it's like a song. You, you only, only need, need one. one. And, but it does lead me to the idea of um, you, you can't let perfect be the enemy of Absolutely good. Absolutely not. No, no. E.G. Whitlam. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's true, it's right? Totally when, true. when we're looking yeah. for change, yeah. can, can you explain a bit? So I think, yeah, that's a really good point. So one of the, I don't want to call it a mistake, one of the things I think quite often find happening is that we do allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good. We idealise a situation around this perfect construct. It's like people say to me, oh, it must have been terrible to go into politics and, you know, couldn't get what you know. I say, are you kidding me? Politics, since the dawn of time, has been an incremental step of very hard decision making, <laughs> one step forward, two steps back, yeah. two steps forward, one step, yeah, that is politics. Yeah. You can't describe it any, any other way. I mean, it's, it's the legalised way of sorting out the problem without you and I thumping one another. So to that extent, we need to take away this idea that I live in my own Hollywood and my Hollywood has heroes and happy endings and everything's good, and if it isn't good, it's not been kind to me, so I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I need to look at it and go, actually, it's not Hollywood, it's real life. And in real life, we have to do the work. How did our forebears in modern Australia end up producing things like School of Arts halls? And how did they build scout halls for girl guides and boy scouts? They went and raised the money in bottle shop. They didn't, they didn't put their hand out and say, can someone... You know, they just went and did it. And I'm not saying government doesn't have a role to play. I, I strongly believe in the social security system here and plenty parts of it. But I also strongly believe in this idea that you have to take that up that cudgel yourself. And if that means that you're not hanging in front of the box or, you know, sitting online, sort of losing a bit of time, then so be it. You know, you make, you make those compromises. And I'm not very good with popular culture. And I never was, particularly in the really busy days, you'd go somewhere and people would be, you know, your world in a way, Osh, but not, not only your world. I would get a bit of it and I'd love it, but I couldn't get all of it because I was doing other things. You know, you can't consume all this stuff endlessly. You have to be at the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> the world is changed by people that turn up. I strongly believe that. Just a moment away from Peter Garrett to let you know that we have a new Instagram handle here at the show. Yes, we do. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. It's simply OG better than yesterday, all one word. OG better than yesterday, all one word. Just posting exclusively podcast content there. Everything else I'll put on the regular Instagram, but I wanted to try and get them separate finally. 10 years, you think I've done it earlier. Uh, <laughs> but if you want to keep up with upcoming guests and new episodes and such and such, OG better than yesterday is where you can find it. DM me there. Yeah, there's a good place. If you want to tell me where you're listening, you can do that or you can email me. There's an email button on that as well. My personal account was kind of getting messy with all the malarkey of the other TV stuff I do. And, you know, having someone scream, take it off next to a video of someone like Peter Garrett talking about it, it's like, ah, is that making sense? A lot of people kind of get a bit freaked out by that. So I'm going to separate them for a while, see how it works. And if it doesn't work, we'll go back to a single feed. We'll see what goes on. Oh, in the show notes as well, there's a listener survey. If you like this show, I'd like to make this show better for you. And if you have just a couple of minutes, eight, 10 minutes, I'd really appreciate your time. It's right there in the show notes. DM me if you need anything and do share this episode if you can. That really helps us a lot. We're back with more in a moment with Peter Garrett. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're a dad, you have a wonderful family, you're... There's a saying in country, we mentioned Johnny Cash before, there's a saying in country, only kin can harmonise. And um, you've got uh, uh, some of your kids yeah, on this record. Yeah, Yeah, no, I know. That's a wonderful, isn't it? It's good, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. It's a great line. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. And, yeah, we used to sit in the back of the bus when we were touring across the States and quite often go across the country stations, particularly in the middle. Oh, it's just wonderful, you know, and real stories. I used to hate it. I had that sort of punk rock thing, you know, country music. Eh. I just started to listen to the words. I'm going, ooh. Mate, but if you're not listening to country music shittily compressed like it's being played down a phone line through an AM station that has a transmitter 180 kilometres away, yeah. that's not how it was supposed to sound. It is designed <laughs> to be heard on a speaker this big, yeah. far, far away. Absolutely. And at those points, I, I used to spend a lot of time in Utah and there's a station there that just, I could not get enough of it. No. It was just, oh, my, that's a storyteller. Oh, yeah, no, totally. They tell right. stories. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, so, look, I mean... Uh, so I've got three daughters and uh, two of the girls in particular, uh, May, the second daughter, and Grace, the youngest one, love their music. We didn't sort of do a whole thing of, you know, you, this is what you'll do. They've gone off to do other things. But they've still got a little bit of that in their blood and they've got their own band now. And uh, they sang on the first one. I just said, come in and sing. Couldn't afford to bring anyone else in really. So I uh, brought them in and they did okay. So uh, when, when, I, when it came time to do this one, I said to Tony Buchan, who produced it with me, he said, what are you going to do with the BVs? I said, oh, I don't know. He said, bring your daughters in, you know, they'll do the job. And they have. And they've, I mean, I love it. As a dad, I'm super proud. That goes without saying. Yeah. But the other thing I like about it is that I actually, I haven't said this to them, I can hear a bit of the me in the way that they sing. <laughs> and, you know, that is actually very special. I never thought I'd get to that day at all. Is it, is it going to be a Barnsley situation where they join you on the road? Uh, I'm not going to call it a Barnsley situation with great respect to Jim and the crew. It's got like, like most of his band is yeah. his kids, you know, yeah. and his brother-in-law. Yeah, you know, he, he's, he's doing it really well. But, yeah, no, they'll come out to sing. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so, and Grace has done, my youngest one's done all the artwork for the album as well. I mean, I've noticed other people do it, like Neil did it in Crowded House, and you see people do it in different places. To begin with, you think, but if there's enough separation, like I think if they were teenagers, definitely not. But at this stage of the game, just a lot of fun. I saw uh, Liam Finn on stage with Neil when he yeah. was 15. Yeah, well, yeah, he, he, he's really gifted. Well, his dad wrote, I got you at 16. I know, insane. 16. Yeah. No. I was bumping into things and oh, no. <laughs> trying to sneak well, booze uh, out of a cabinet. As for nascent songwriters, we, and, and you know, because Bonesy Hillman, who uh, used to play bass in the Oils and unfortunately passed away, lived with Neil. Finn and Sharon, his wife, in Melbourne for years, and that's how he got into Midnight Oil. 
uh, through that association. And we used to get, when we were touring overseas, we used to get the demos. Like they'd be demoing them or the, or the rough mixes. And we'd just be sitting there. We'd be trying to crank out a song, get a song working, and we'd get Neil's stuff, and we'd just be going, oh, God, damn it, he's done it again. <laughs> <laughs> I've just, dreamt it's over. Oh, really? I'm not even sorry for that pun. <laughs> to, to stay and to still be creative in your life, I'm not going to talk about age, but there's, there was a time, and I think about, you know, you didn't mention surfing. Mark Richards, one of the greatest surfers Australia ever saw, retired no, at 27 in. because he thought, I'm too old for this. Yeah, no, this exactly. is what kids do. Yeah. And later on went, hang on a sec, Kelly Slater just won his, like, a seventh world title at 50. Yeah. All right? Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> what the fuck? I could have done this. So what's it, what's it to, to stay creative, to stay connected to this thing? What does it do for you? Well, I, I don't know about keeping you young, but it certainly gives you lots of juice. And I think that you should do what you love for as long as you can. And if you're lucky enough to be able to do it, then throw yourself at it. I think the other thing is that it depends on how you define, if one defines oneself. I mean, you could say that we live in a very youthful culture and that's probably true, but I'm a boomer and I'm in a generation, we've got a lot to answer for because we've inherited prosperity, but we've stuffed up a lot of things and we've made it very difficult uh, for our kids and their kids to kind of get a, get a foothold on things. But for creativity, I mean, I heard Muddy Waters, it's, it's in my book, and I think we might have even chatted about it, Rosh, back in the day, but I heard a, an American blues artist from Chicago, a guy called Muddy Waters, who's passed away now, but was one of the greats. And I heard him uh, when I was a kid, you know, just at uni, and just starting to get interested in music and thinking, oh, I could do this. And it was one of the best shows I ever saw. He was probably in his mid-50s. Wow. And it was brilliant. And then I went and saw, you know, someone else running around on a stage in their 20s, and Muddy Waters had something happening. So for me, I, I never thought at the time, you can't do it later, because I'd seen someone who was just so yeah. strong and grand and so like in the zone. And the thing about music, I think at its best, even though you need some physicality when you're you know, hooking it on stage, at its best, it actually isn't really. I mean, some parts of it have been about age, but whoever, we never bought into that sort of rock till you drop, you know, live fast, die young sort of thing. That, that all seemed a bit, like, dumb. So that wasn't where our heads were at. And the fact that we continued to make music and then came back to play and found that you do learn stuff as you get older and you can get better at some things, you know. In your time in Parliament, you yeah. would have been privy to all of the kind of things that are now making news and, you know, things about this is the projections of carbon in the atmosphere, this is the projections, like uh, you would have seen how much there is to do, you would have seen exactly where it was going. When you came home, and your kids would have been a lot younger at the time, Yeah. how did you look at your kids? Did you feel pain? Did you, what did you say to them? How did you, did it change the way you were a dad? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that I'd always talk to them about why I wanted to do it. And I mean, you know, they had to listen to me rattling on about, you know, tax and environment law and actions and things like uh, that. You know, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, turn, turn it down. <laughs> so they knew and it was naive, but I also think it was a distillation of the ultimate truth. And that is that representative democracy only works when you do put your hand up and go and do something. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, I, I happen to end up in government and, and it, you know, I was in the cabinet for uh, all the time that was under Rudd and Gillard. So that's a great responsibility and a thing to do. But to me, it felt no different to what I was doing. You know, I mean, different mechanisms and stuff, but actually the, the internal impulse is no different. 
there are certain disciplines associated with it. And the only other thing I'd say is that, you know what, government can do and should do things, and it can. It has the money and it actually has the power. Getting ideas out in the public, as we mentioned, is tricky through the press, but getting an idea out in the public through music is a really fantastic way. We've seen it over history. It's a really fantastic way to kind of subvert, you know, people's biases. For whatever reason, the the power of guitars, bass, drums, singer on stage is a lot less than it was in our community. And that mantle has been taken up now by people like Briggs, AB Original, people like One Four. Um, When you see music and activism, and activist music you can dance to, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Um, do, you, do you have a sense of hope? What do you feel? Yeah, no, I mean, I think this idea that, you know, musicians or music-making or artists are, are not, are less political than they used to be and, you know, where's another mid-idol or whatever is just completely misplaced, you know. The truth of it is that rock itself is pretty barren. It's pretty barren ground. I mean, the best example that we've got is the Stones. I mean, on, on, on one hand, you look at the Stones and you go, how the hell? But on the other hand, I look at it and... HGH, it. that's how. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Tides. Yeah. And Stem all the, cells. Yeah, <laughs> and, and everything, you know. Everything. Everything the Swiss clinic can bring. Oh, greatest money can buy. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, when you really look at it, you just think, it's quite pathetic, you know. <laughs> uh, they don't need the money. We've heard the chords. I mean, they're a great band, don't get me wrong, but it's quite pathetic. And, uh, you know... <laughs> You know, to, to have an 80-year-old multimillionaire talking about, you know, taking more pills and going to Brazil with a 20-year-old, I mean, it's seriously, that's their thing. But that's why rock doesn't have much to say because people are still caught up in these quite clichéd, stereotypical sort of ideas of, you know, faux rebellion that was sort of seemed really impressive when they were 16 or 17. Hey, fine, I was like that as well. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's coming from hip-hop, it's coming from rap, it's coming particularly in our country from... Uh, First Nations artists that you've mentioned. And I'm seeing it in other bits of music as well. And I'm seeing it on the street. I'm seeing it with kids just doing stuff anyway, whether it's digitally or stuff around and about the place. And I think one of the best and greatest hopes that we can have is the knowledge that humans have done a lot of things which they cannot be proud of, but they've done a lot of things which are phenomenal and amazing and they can be proud of. And so, you know to use one of those terribly ubiquitous advertising slogans, their time to shine. <laughs> and I think we're all still alive because the things that we've done have always outweighed, that are good, Absolutely. have always outweighed the other one. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, we've done an hour and people are about to stand up and run because there's probably something else that's happening around the corner. Um, was good, right? Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Garrett. <laughs> well, that was fun. It was amazing. Peter Garrett, what an absolute legend. He's got new music out right now. You can get it wherever you get your music. And he's touring, absolutely, in support of the new album. The uh, tour is called The True North Tour 2024. He'll be performing at Canberra, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Cairns and Brisbane. The gigs are in March. The tickets are uh, on sale right now. Go to petergarrett.com.au. Peter Garrett, and Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or, come on, have you ever seen Peter Peter Garrett live? This is a good show. The man knows how to put on a gig. It'll be good. It'll be real good. Uh, thanks to everyone to help make that one happen. Thank you to South by Southwest for inviting me to be there. It was great. We did two shows there. Uh, the other one will come out in a little while. 
Uh, thank you very much to all the team from Sony. Uh, thank you for Watto. If you heard the Ben and Chris from Silverchair podcast, the Watto that they spoke about, it was the Watto that helped us make that happen. So thank you, Watto. Ben Richardson as well, uh, who moved mountains to help that show come together. For everyone who uh, helped make this show, Andy Marr on post-production, Toe Hyder, who made all the music, and Abby Benno, who um, produced the episode. Uh, we have an Instagram handle. I'd love to get around. OG, better than yesterday is where it is. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Is that's the podcast Instagram. Just testing it out to see how it feels put the podcast stuff on another handle and my um, my personal stuff and I'll see you Wednesday thanks for being a part of it <laughs>